Hey y'all, before we begin, I want to make sure you know about my live parent workshops. One Friday a month, I host a live virtual parent workshop on topics related to raising neurodivergent kids and teens. We cover topics like how to talk to your child about their diagnosis, how to support negative self-talk, and navigating school for your child. You can register for workshops one at a time, or you can become an all-access subscriber on Substack for instant access to all the workshops and replays. To browse the workshop library and subscribe, go to learnwithdremily.substack.com and click Parent Workshops. Hey y'all, before we begin, if you're a school administrator who loves watching your teachers and students thrive, but you feel your staff needs more training to meet the needs of such a diverse group of learners, I am here for you. I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in-person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdremily.com schools to get started. This is how our culture views behaviors. We don't view a stress response and make a distinction between that and this behavior that if you don't reinforce it, it'll go away. Like everything's reinforcement and consequences. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. I am beyond excited to welcome Dr. Mona Delahook to the Learn with Dr. Emily podcast today, where we are going to be diving into shifting our mindset into helping educators understand what polyvagal theory is and how it's already happening. They just need to know what it is to understand it best to connect with their students. So welcome, Dr. Delahook. Thank you so much, Emily. I'm so excited to talk to you today. So Dr. Mona Delahook is a psychologist and mentor of mine who lives and practices in the Los Angeles area. As a young psychologist, she realized that the field of psychology included very little about early development. So she embarked on a deep dive of postgraduate work in infancy and toddlerhood, during which she discovered the importance of brain-body connection and how we understand and support our children. So to this day, we all know that the fields of psychology and education still haven't fully integrated the wisdom we're learning from research in neuroscience and often rely on methods that seek to alter kids' behavior through rewards and consequences. Once we acknowledge that behaviors, though, are meaningful and protective adaptations to a child's internal experience— we can create a whole new range of compassionate and individually tailored options that surpass just managing behaviors. So Dr. Delahook explains all of this and the paradigm shift that could be so helpful for parents and educators to make in her book, Beyond Behaviors, and also in her book for parents, Brain Body Parenting. She explains how loving, attuned, responsive relationships are the foundation of resilience for our children. So welcome. I wanted to give everyone a little background on where we're coming from in this conversation. And I'm excited to talk about polyvagal theory and the context of education to help our teachers really understand what's going on in their children's nervous systems, in their students' brains and nervous systems right in front of them. So what is polyvagal theory and how does it relate to working with not just young children, but also neurodivergent children who have sensitive nervous systems? Well, first of all, I'm just so grateful that you're talking about this because when we say nervous system, I don't want teachers or parents to to go, oh no, nervous system, that, what is that? You know, that even that can sound like kind of a phrase we're not familiar with. And 
all a nervous system is, is the brain and the body combined. And in a lot of our training in psychology and education, we are taught so much about the brain making decisions, right? Like just the brain. But what informs our brains is our bodies. And so what I love about the polyvagal theory is that it talks about that autonomic nervous system, which is our automatic one. I think it's one of the most important ones where the body is constantly giving feedback to the brain to tell the brain what sensations are happening in the body, what basic feelings are coming out there, like are, is this good or bad, safe or unsafe? And those basic sensations are going to be what manifest in behaviors and emotions. So it's mm -hmm. so vital for me to talk about the nervous system to teachers, parents, providers, to everybody, because it's almost like we cannot talk about a child's behavior unless we connect it to this protective, adaptive, automatic um, pathway. And, and there are different, different pathways we can talk about. And Dr. Porges just, he was, he was out there studying neonates and little babies who are having trouble maintaining their, their um, health. And through the years, um, his research helped us understand so much about trauma, about behaviors. And um, to me, it gave, the, it gave us permission, it gave me permission as a psychologist many years ago, 25 years ago, to go off brand from what I was trained and to go with this whole idea of the psychology of safety, of the neurobiology of safety. And it really helped the children and families I worked with far more than, um, frankly, what I learned in graduate school. Mm -hmm. And you're reminding me of a quote that I have all queued up because I love it and wanted to share it today, is that this is from you, oh. <laughs> that human beings don't engage in challenging behaviors when they feel safe. You can't teach humans to feel safe. It's an embodied experience that happens in relationships of trust. Mm. And when I read that quote, I see this immediately through the lens of an educator mm. who is taught and trained like we were to jump straight into the teaching yeah with young children and with children who may be in third grade, but may have sixth grade reading skills and first grade self, you know, emotional regulation skills. Yeah. And so when we jump straight into the standardized teaching that we think that that age or that grade is supposed to be receiving, we miss the safety part. And so I'd like to start with what do you want teachers to know about the importance of students feeling safe? Mm. Yes. And it's likely nothing that teachers were taught about in their training because it wasn't in, and it wasn't frankly in our training either. I don't know if it was in yours, but it wasn't in mine. Mm -mm. So I'm going to start by giving another quote from Dr. Porges. And this is a quote that really guided my thinking. And, and it is this, our biological imperative is to connect with others. Humans are not able to flourish without that connection. So when he says biological imperative, what that means is we are wired as humans to connect with others and to seek safety. At the most basic level, that's what babies are doing. That's what toddlers and students and everybody all of us are doing. Our bodies are searching for safety. And so if we think about that connection, there is something that Dr. Porges calls the social engagement system. But basically what that is, is when the body feels safe on a subconscious level. That's when learning happens. That's when a person is able to stretch to the maximum of their little box Teachers may have heard Vygotsky's um, zone of proximal development, right? That, that mm -hmm. just right zone where students are learning something new. And we, this is where we, we like to have our students. And the way 
a student gets there really is through getting these cues of safety from the world around them. And teachers are like one of the biggest sources of that. Yeah. And so what a teacher might be noticing from a student as what would be called a maladaptive behavior. So things that would pose resistance to this sense of safety, things like separation anxiety and school refusal and work avoidance, those kind of when we're thinking of those pre-K through second grade kids that kind of haven't learned how to be a student yet, mm-hmm. sometimes we talk about that in terms of like they haven't learned the process of school and that they need to come in. But a large portion of those young children, especially if they're neurodivergent, are not feeling safe separating from a caregiver and coming to what I always call their their home caregiver and their school caregiver yeah. and transitioning from one to the other. What are some things... a teacher can look out for and can also be telling the difference between that stress response of not feeling safe and a behavior that I know we've talked about before is that kind of a more intentional um, or adaptive coping behavior of of avoidance where they they might have the skill, but they're feeling a little sneaky that day. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah what, just talking more to, yeah. to that point and what a teacher may be feeling is problematic behavior. Right, right. So it's really important to distinguish between those two types of behaviors. One way we can think about those is uh, top-down or bottom-up behaviors. And of course, um, you know, we can all think about behaviors that are mediated or thought about, thoughtful, right? Like, um, you know, sneaking over there and seeing what's in your neighbor's lunch and maybe... uh, taking out a Sammy that looks yummy and replacing it with some chips. I mean, that would take thoughtfulness. That is testing out some limits and, you know, kind of doing a behavior that's intentional or purposeful. So we, we all know that students do that. But when we talk about stress behaviors, we're talking about a different class of behaviors. So these behaviors are ones that to a teacher may seem like they come, quote unquote, out of the blue. Like you may have a a child who all of a sudden um, throws everything off their desk or kicks somebody or tries to run out of the room. Another type of stress behavior would be um, a child who once uh, upon drop off starts to cry when the caregiver leaves and starts to sit there and loses control of their ability to talk. Those are stress behaviors. Those are behaviors that are telling us that the child's nervous system is using up a lot of energy to try to get back to calm. They're not intentional. They're not willful. So I think that's the, you know, the primary, the the difference is that we can look at those features in the body. How fast is that child moving? Is there some sort of kind of push and pull where they look like they are hypervigilant or upset, uncoordinated, or, you know, even like darting, their eyes are darting around, just looking across the room, surveying the room. These are survival kinds of of, um, behaviors that are subconsciously driven, meaning they're, they're not intentional. They're not a child saying, okay, right now I'm going to figure out who I'm going to kick, or right now I'm going to run out of the room. These are kind of survival-based cry out for support from the adults in the room. Yeah. So within the context of polyvagal theory, let's just take one of those as an example of um, a child who separates from the caregiver. And we all know this situation probably as parents and clinicians and teachers Someone rips off the Band-Aid, quote unquote, rips off the Band-Aid and just scoops up the child and we get into the school building and then the parent leaves. Mm. And so what is happening in that child's nervous system at that moment? So in in that case, if the child is struggling with it, so in a case where a child starts to, you know, have mm-hmm. a really hard time, what's happening in the nervous system is that at the moment of separation or whenever the child realizes, their child's body realizes that something is about to happen that is going against what they're predicting or what they what their body needs. Mm. 
all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. everything goes into high gear. So there's different, we we call it the subconscious threat detection. Um, So I call it the safety sensor. The safety sensor, which is, again, subconscious, goes off and it tells the body to fight or to freeze or to have a mix. It's a, it's kind of a wide range, but um, some of the, again, some of the features are, are that the child loses control of their ability to talk to you and to tell you what's going on. Mm -hmm. If a child can say, oh, teacher, I'm so sad that mommy's leaving, or I'm really scared to be without my daddy, or what if something happens to them and they can't pick me up? If a child's able to talk about it, you have a be, you don't have a, as big of a stress response because they are in right. the social engagement system. So one thing we really want teachers to do is to have this ability to communicate with their students and look at that behavior, say, oh, you know, either with words or non-verbally, you're not alone. I see this. Oh, they're there. What's going to, what's going to happen? Uh, what can I, how can I help you? And I can't mm-hmm. tell you the number of of times um, I've gone into preschools, mostly in TK classes, where there are children sitting by the door crying by themselves. And the teachers are looking over, again, these are well-intentioned teachers. This is how they were trained. But they're looking over and trying not to pay attention to those crying babies because they think that they will give attention to that behavior and they just want the child to get over it, start to play, mommy will be back, but they don't want to feed the behavior by going over and calming or soothing the student. At at the extreme, this is how our culture views behaviors. We don't view a stress Mm -hmm. response and make a distinction between that and this behavior that if you don't reinforce it, it'll go away. Like everything's reinforcement and consequences. And that is, of course, active ignoring that you're explaining that many teachers are trained on of I'm going to, ignore. you know, I'm, I'm aware I'm this child is in my line of view, so they are safe, but I'm going to actively ignore mm-hmm. that so that I'm not feeding into the behavior. But what is an alternative? Describe that same situation, if you will, as an alternative of that child is upset and what would nurture and support that child's regulation in that moment? Well, the first step is a shift in the lens. So an awareness that Mm -hmm. there is um, something going on here that requires the tool, the biggest tool we have as teachers is something called co-regulation, which basically means we're sharing a bit of our calm nervous system and reassuring or uh, attuning to the suffering that's going on in another little human. One of the things I'll say about that first off is another quote that I love from Dr. Porges, and it has to do with checking in with yourself first, because it isn't easy to be around dysregulated students. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard. It's not, it's hard as a parent. It's hard as a teacher. And teachers have all these students in their classrooms. You know, are the number of students per teacher, uh, our, our, our paradigms were created during the Industrial Revolution, where education was viewed as this kind of conveyor belt thing. You put in 30 students. It's so arbitrary. It's way too many. So first of mm-hmm. all, teachers, I feel for you. It's very hard to regulate a bunch of nervous systems. And and um, so I, I feel for you. But This quote from Dr. Porges that I love is, only when we are in a calm physiological state can we convey cues of safety to another. So the magic wand, so to speak, when a child is in a stress response, when a child is crying, desperate to get out the door and try to find their parent, is to provide cues of safety. And the cues Mm -hmm. of safety we provide our best um, efforts come when we are taking care of ourselves. So realize if you are feeling totally stressed out or angry at the child, which all these feelings are normal human emotions, take a breath. Hopefully you'll have an aide in the classroom or someone who says, hey, I need to take two minutes. 
please take care of yourself. Um, And then once you do, you can provide those little safety cues. Like instead of active ignoring, it might be glancing over to the child with a look of compassion in your face saying, oh, sweetie, or, oh, this is hard. Or, you know, maybe coming up close to them and letting them know that they aren't alone. Like physically, I'm right here with you. It really depends on the child and on the teacher. So there's a, you know, you can experiment. It's not, there's no one size fits all on how to help a child feel better. It's really an experiment in real time. It's improvisation. Right. Which is what, of course, we love with our floor time background. It's improv. It's improv. You, I mean, I say to people all the time, yeah. um, I don't make... I don't make plans for therapy because I never know what's going to happen. And that's the beauty of it. And I do feel like um, every teacher resonates with that. They definitely don't know what's going to happen when they walk into the classroom every morning. Exactly. But I would love for educators to embrace that even more. That's part of the, you know, the entertainment of it all. You know, when I was working in schools and working with teachers, I absolutely felt that way. If I have no idea what today is going to bring. Um, (laughs) And it's so hard because, yeah, I was just going to say, if you are someone who likes structure, like I love structure and I'm, I love organization. When I was a young therapist, I used to go into my sessions with a written out plan, right? It was like my treatment plan. So maybe like a teacher's (laughs) goals for the morning. But that's how we were trained, that you're pointing out a really, really wonderful parallel because many, many teachers, they have their colored pens. They love a good bulletin board. They have an organized notebooks. I am the same way just as a therapist and many therapists. We were all trained for this structure. And I think it goes along with this, um, this system of, you know, curriculum goes in order. And our therapy treatment plan is that the deficit medical model goes in order. And we are all learning as we have this gut feeling as as educators and therapists that human brains are not linear. And so that's the first thing I try to help teachers understand is that you are armed with this linear curriculum and that's the resistance you're feeling. That is so good. I'm going to have to quote you on that. Human brains are not linear and we are trained that they are. So no wonder, Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for saying that because now I feel like I wasn't the only one who went in there with the plan to say, okay, I'm going to do this first. (laughs) Oh no, I I threw it out. I threw it out a while ago, but I definitely as a younger psychologist had my plan of of working kids through, like we're going to, I mean, to an extent you can do that with some educating kids about their brains and about how anxiety works, but they may not come into the session or a teacher, your child, your student may not come into the classroom ready to receive that information. So you might have to throw that out the window that day and then wait for a moment where they're regulated to receive that information. Exactly. And the analogy that we're using, I'm developing a a certificate course right now, and the analogy that we're using is that you always have to be, it's a gardening analogy, that you always have to be analyzing the soil before you plant the seeds. So when you're analyzing the soil, you are looking for that readiness to learn. And if the soil is completely dry and rocky, it's, it's like a child who is so dysregulated, and no matter what you try to teach them, if you don't tend to the so- analyzing the soil and seeing what they need to get regulated, to turn on their social engagement system for learning, you're going to be spinning your wheels. And that requires flexible thinking. And it requires us to also see that's the other thing that we were trained, I was trained, and teachers are trained is that behaviors are linear and behavior theory fits into that. So If you have behavior theory, that's also linear. It's like if you do A, the child will do B. Stimulus response. That doesn't work anymore either because human brains aren't linear, like you just said. So here's another way of thinking about it. You and I were talking about this right before, and that is, in a way, what these new theories are giving us permission to do is to act more human. 
is to go with our instincts. If it doesn't feel right, like if you were trained, like have a, if a child is crying and you're, and you're act, using active ignoring or they're doing something and you're wondering, is this child suffering somehow emotionally? This is permission for you to say, you know what? I don't think this child needs ignoring right now. I think they need connection. Go off script. Um, because again, in education, there's a lot of pressure to having an organized, quiet, compliant classroom. That's the culture of education. And we need to give permission to teachers to say, you know what? A quiet classroom doesn't mean, isn't the marker of a bunch of regulated nervous systems. In fact, it's probably the opposite, a little more, a little more movement where children are moving around, where people are having laughing and having conversations and, and learning at the same time. That's where we want to think, put our thinking. Mm -hmm. And I am so glad you brought that up because I do not want teachers to feel this is just one more thing to learn, one more theory to get behind. It's already happening. This is just putting words to it and actually challenging us to think about, like you said, going with our instincts as caregivers, because that's what teachers are. They're, they're caregivers within the school day. Yes. And they are helping our children learn, but they do 5,000 other things that help our children with independence and social skills and taking care of themselves during the school day that they are not getting credit for. And all of that is instinctual to teachers. Yes. And what we're saying is you're already, all of this is already happening. There's nothing more to do other than noticing it, noticing your own nervous system and what you feel drawn to do and connecting with that child to help them be more ready to learn. And I often say to teachers, the, the good news here is that this is already a thing. We just have to embrace it. Giving yourself permission to have that instinctual teacher, attuning, caregiver, think back, maybe as a teacher, think back to your favorite teacher. I know that my favorite teacher, my second grade teacher, Mrs. Trout, made me feel safe. I remember <laughs> how she looked. I remember her hairstyle. I remember how she smelled. I mean, and I was a super anxious kid. And, and just this, yes, teachers, you don't have to learn anything new. This is more about giving permission and saying, actually, neuroscience is kind of opening the door wide to compassion and love and what that means and what it looks like. So you don't have to learn anything new. You might want to unlearn some of the stuff. And if you unlearn behavior, a little bit of behavior theory, I'm not talking about anarchy in the classroom or anything like that. And natural consequences are absolutely fine. But if you unlearn some of the other things, like, again, this one of dismantling, active ignoring, planned ignoring, that doesn't ever work with a stress response. The child might calm down, but the reason, if you look inside their nervous system, they probably have high activation and they're calming down because they are afraid. So, oh my gosh, sorry, I went off there, but it's... That's okay. But what you're saying there is meaning they look calm, but their nervous system is actually, it could be in freeze. Yes. Because their body those is calm, are our, looks calm. Yes, those are our kids who have a mixed presentation in those pathways of the nervous system and they might be hypervigilant but sometimes they'll look compliant and when you find out you know years later this person is developing extreme anxiety is because they looked calm and they so much wanted to please the teacher and and have adults appreciate them and not get mad at them but it took a big toll on their nervous system right and there are many, many educators and therapists, including myself, that I talk to who are people pleasers, stay in the box to help your anxiety, you know, remain at bay. And that's also dysregulation in another sense of you are ignoring your body to be able to do the cognitive things you're being asked to do. And then it gets rewarded in school. 
So we're trying to find a balance with all of this and helping kids feel their bodies and remain regulated and help teachers feel their bodies and and figure out what they need to stay regulated. And all of this is connected as we're, we're basically learning together, feeling together in a classroom, right? Yes, yes. And you do need support because it's a new way to be in a classroom. And mm-hmm. um, again, I'm just so glad and and grateful that you are giving teachers permission to see that it's okay to do this. It's it's good for everybody involved because once we prioritize this feeling of uh, safety in our in our in our brains and bodies, which is really what the polyvagal theory is, it unleashes flourishing and thriving and resilience. The there's so much research on the resilience literature, which completely lines up with what we're talking about. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of science behind it. I want to say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. The regulation roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it. And the reframing behavior worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdremily.com slash roster or learnwithdremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. Will you talk a little more about anyone who has reservations about giving in, quote unquote, giving in to behaviors if they engage in an, an, you know, an empathic nurturing of a child at that moment? Um, Is that rewarding? Is that going to, this is what I hear a lot, is that going to reinforce them to do this again, engage in this behavior again? Mm -hmm. I know that that's not what's happening in a stress response, but will you speak more to the fear that some educators have because this is our training, Mm -hmm. the fear that if I engage in a loving and compassionate way to support this child, I'm, I'm losing control of my classroom, so to speak. That's just such a boots on the ground question. It's so (laughs) real. I tend to ask those. And I can totally relate to that. I can relate to that also as a parent when I shifted my paradigm. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, after my training, I was, I raised my kids when they were little before I understood stress responses. And, you know, I doled out timeouts like a dime a dozen. (laughs) And, and I, I felt like you heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> you heard it here first, everyone. It's a little humiliating, but it's okay. Um, so, okay. So first of all, so much compassion for the belief and it might be how it, it is, how the education system views control and compliance. So you're not having these feelings out of nowhere. They are based in our cultural beliefs. So validating. Yes, I hear you. I get that. And then we can use our new insight to say, all right, that's one point of view. But this new point of view is actually telling us the opposite. And that is, if this child is in a stress response, that my trying to control their situation or ignore the bad behavior will actually either make it worse or have the child's emotions go underground. So I would invite teachers to just try out, try something out, try a small thing out. Have a child that you have been using this idea that you want to stay in control and not lose, not, you know, and and maybe ignore behavior or kind of not give it much energy. Try attuning with that child, maybe in just a small way. Like maybe moving over and just checking out how they're, how they're doing and, and giving them a question or, or a little task to like help you with or something. And just see if you notice a shift in their body and a shift in the look on their face and a shift in their frequency of behavior that day. Just do a little experiment because I understand this is, this is like dipping your toe in the water of a whole new paradigm. And um, 
I get the question. I understand. The fear is. Yeah, it'll feel, it will feel like a little bit of a loss of control. And I, I mean, I always say, because it is, you are not in control of if this little strategy of shifting over and trying to co-regulate with a child, you're not really in control of if that's going to work or not. It may not work. This is all just trying out what works for a student. And what's so hard about this is you've got 25 of them. So I talk to teachers all the time about getting to know their kids at the beginning of the school year and trying to figure out who needs what for regulation and, and validating that that's a learning curve at the beginning of every school year. It is. It's and at the beginning of every day, as they're walking in, like sometimes they're wearing it on their on their face or on their behaviors. Like sometimes or, or a parent might say, OK, it's been one of those mornings or they didn't sleep last night. You know, so sometimes you can kind of measure where they're coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I have to ask to what I, I get this question a lot and I would love to hear your take on it. So the child who is having trouble separating and crying and it's anxiety. And I think most of us as humans have more immediate compassion for that. Mm -hmm. We see that more as anxiety. It's more obviously anxiety. But what also is anxiety is ripping up a math test, is pushing a peer who startled us, um, hitting, running out of the classroom, aggressive behaviors that are very much seen more problematic and give us less of a compassionate response as an educator. And so I would love to get your take on at times when teachers are faced with emotions that um, it's a safety issue to get close to a child or it's a safety issue for a child to to run. Um, And of course, they're Things we have to do to keep kids safe and, and keep eyes on kids. Yeah. and um, But I, I would just love to talk in the context of schools and education of the reality of fear that comes up for educators when they, they want to be compassionate. And they there will be a time for that yeah. once a child comes down from yes. an incredibly alerted state. But yes. yeah, what are your thoughts on those, um, those really big, hard yeah. behaviors? Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's a good question, and I agree with you. It's easier. In, in some ways, the, the children whose um, anxiety comes out as behaviors, as um, anxious behaviors, you know, are the lucky mm-hmm. ones, are the luckier ones, because yeah. they tend to get more compassion. So in terms of those children, and we have to remember that in those uncontrolled, big, huge, aggressive, either self-destructive or destructive to other behaviors, the underlying neurophysiology is the same or more intense as the anxiety. So it's hard to remember. Let's First of all, let's think about that. What's driving this behavior is desperation and not intention. So but it's very hard. And having said that, of course, the first thing with these types of behaviors is that we have to keep everyone safe. So that it, this does not mean that we use our most compassionate tools to make sure that child doesn't hurt somebody or harm themselves. So we have to make sure everybody's safe. We can do, you know, yeah, there's a, a lot of, of things you can do to help make sure somebody is safe. And also at the same time, let them know you're not alone. We're going to help you. We're here to help and, and not using too many words, but the rav. So the shift can be, first of all, instead of you are in violation, we are calling the school officer or we are calling in the, you know, the troops to help us restrain you. It could be, we see you. We're here with you. You're not alone. We're going to figure this out. We're going to help you. And then giving that, giving that message to the nervous system of the child that not that they're this bad person who is trying to harm everyone because we believe at that moment that they're not. So keeping everybody safe. And then what was the second part of your question? Like, what are your thoughts on how we can process and think through maybe 
anger and irritation we may feel towards a child, even though we cognitively know we shouldn't feel that way. We're human. We're human. Our brains are predicting because of our past experiences. So we have to have compassion for our thoughts. But notice- Can you say more about that? Our past experiences? Yes. So the- the, our brains are essentially prediction machines. And that means that what's happening in the present, this is from the theory of constructed emotions by uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, um, one of the top neuroscientists, that our, our brains are constantly subconsciously figuring out what to do based on the whole category of our life's past experiences, our childhood and everything that's happened, our training, everything that's happened in relationship to what we see in the moment. So the first thing we can do is realize if we're triggered and have compassion for that. Oh, shoot. I'm mad. I'm scared. I'm, oh my God, what's the, why is this child choosing this behavior? Because that that mantra in your head will probably come up. They are choosing to be destructive right now. And then we can say, ah. Oh, Maybe they're not choosing. Maybe this is desperation. So we we want to anchor our own self first. S- check in with yourself. Check in with how hard, how fast your heart's beating. How scared are you? How angry are you? It's okay to realize that first. In fact, I think it's important because if you don't, what you're going to convey to that student is going to be reflective of your most anxious emotions. So passion for yourself and then have a, you can have a plan. You can have a plan for what to do when a desk is turned over or when a child's trying to run out the door. I think it's, it's fine to have these plans on, I will do this when this child does that, because you might have a student that is um, pretty predictable in terms of once that trigger gets pulled, they will start to have those challenging behaviors. But I really think it starts with our mind shift on realizing that the child isn't um, choosing, a, making a bad choice. And then the hard work that you and I do, and a lot of people do in terms of family therapy and child psychology and school psychology and school counseling is to help students, help children and teenagers learn about their own nervous systems and realize when they are triggered so that they can seek help in appropriate ways. And that doesn't happen overnight. If you have a child who has a strong history of known trauma or developmental trauma or toxic stress, and oftentimes teachers, you won't know, you won't know. But if, if that's in the child's history or if they're neurodivergent and have been provided with a lot of behavior management that made them mask who they really are, you're going to have a lot of energy in those in in that fear system. So you may see more negative behaviors. So it's a, it's huge, Emily. It's a big, it's a big deal. And it's a different way of thinking. So I have so much compassion for, for everybody, for teachers, especially because you're not dealing with one person, you're helping manage a classroom. So be gentle on yourself. Right. I want to welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremily.com tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to learnwithdremily.com slash tracker to get started. For our final question, I wanted to talk about reestablishing safety in a classroom after a child has one of these you know, whatever we're calling it, a, a meltdown, an episode, an event, we hear all these words when a child is dysregulated or a kind of a big thing has happened. You know, sometimes we have to clear classrooms to keep everyone safe. And a few things that come to mind is, are, are teachers often feeling stuck on, I can't, I have to do something because I can't let it look like this child is quote unquote, getting away with this behavior. Or then there's this whole 
argument of, well, wait a minute, why don't we just allow everyone to understand everyone's struggling with something and working on something? Of course, we usually need to get parent permission for these discussions, but what are your thoughts on helping teachers, and of course, we may need administrative support to reestablish the safety of a classroom community after there's been a lot of dysregulation, maybe from one or, or multiple students? Yeah. Well, I, I would love to hear what you have to say about that, because I'm sure you have some great ideas. Um, but what what I've done before um, with the appropriate permissions from administration, from the teachers and parents, is helped teachers do debriefs. Because after an incident, you're going to have, again, 30, 20 nervous systems who reacted to that in different ways. For some students, it may not trigger them into fear or threat or anxiety. For others, it may be a heavy hit. So I'm thinking about the situations that that we were in and it would be that I was leading. It would be something like helping the teacher um, kind of acknowledge something happened. Like, okay, my dears, wow, something big just happened. And um, I and then establishing his or her presence, like, you know what? We're here together. And together, we're going to figure out how we felt about it and what happened. And so just kind of opening it up, maybe talking about how did you you guys feel when, you know, Jackie uh, had difficulty keeping his body quiet or staying in his seat or whatever without judgment, but saying, this is what happened and where did it land in you? And maybe seeing if the kids will process it. Like I was scared or I was mad or I want my mommy, you know, whatever, whatever age they are. Mm -hmm. So I think debriefs are important to establish safety so that we're not just going on and saying nothing happened. Let's just get back to work. But you've got to make sure those nervous systems now are going to re-regulate through safety. So that's, kind of a general framework. I'm sure you have specific. Yeah. And I, I, well, I would just add that, um, and we could probably talk for days about this, but I would just add that it's so important for students to reestablish safety so that you can move on and continue learning. If we sweep it under the rug and ignore that, we have nervous systems in the classroom that are are struggling to regulate and can't focus on what's coming next. Right. And then the other thing I would say is that child is good if without the explanation of what's going on with that child's skills and what that child is working on and getting parent permission to perhaps talk to children about um, what that child is struggling with, kids will come up with their own labels. Kids will come up with, um, you know, not wanting to play with that child because they're, they're scared of that child. And so there are all kinds of social ripple effects that not saying anything about it, not addressing it is, um, yes, these are hard conversations, but they are worth it because the alternative is um, what we've been doing in the past, which is, you know, allowing kids to just come up with their own conclusions or asking them to move on with their day when they're in a scared state. And that's not how we learn. That's not, no learning is going to happen during that time. It's just, it's Mm going to happen. And that's what I keep coming back to with teachers. They, all teachers want their children to learn, want their students to yeah. learn. In the most effective way, absolutely. And every minute that you spend reestablishing safety in the classroom will, be, will, will pay huge dividends in what you teach the students after that. So it might take an hour, might take a half hour of, of establishing safety, but then you'll have the whole afternoon of learning left. The other thing that compassionately using new language to help children understand the difference between a chosen behavior and a stress response, you know, would be to not say things like, well, Johnny chose to have this bad behavior and like, you know, to not use that kind of language and to use, and here would be a different conversation that we can have at a different time, but just the language we use in helping children understand contributes to less 
of what we call othering, like that bad person, that student. There's so much othering that goes on. And that's when you'll see at the playground, people are avoiding the student instead of um, going up and asking if they're okay and, and reestablishing safety. So the ripple effects are, are huge. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today. And um, if anyone is not aware yet of your work, where can they go to read and learn from you? Oh, um, well, my website houses most everything, um, my blog and information about my programs and my books. It's at monadelahook.com. And um, it's an unusual name. So Dr. Mona Delahook on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. <laughs> if you just go put in Mona Delahook, you'll probably find, you find her. <laughs> yeah. Or just find me and I'll just repost things all the time, which is what I do. Uh, yes. <laughs> so this has been such a joy for me to talk with um, you. It's been a joy. And I've just, just loved your, um, your outreach into the world and your courage your bravery in talking about these things um, and helping our field move forward. So Emily, it's been a joy. Thank you. This has been Learn with Dr. Emily at the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit learnwithdremily.com or read my substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we will keep learning together next week.